This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, September 20th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We got full week three reaction tonight, but as I said on Twitter, it was outside of some high points, a few high points, pretty garbage, for lack of a better term, slate yesterday. So we're going to do an abnormal amount of early week four look ahead tonight. I have also got two of our grand season previews that we're unveiling tonight. We're going to do Alabama. We're going to do Georgia. We're also going to talk, obviously, about the Miami game yesterday, about uh, Central Florida, steamrolling Georgia Tech. But we are doing our first two grand season previews tonight. We've got several more to roll out during the week. We've got some stuff to talk about briefly with the Big Ten schedule release. Got a little bit more to talk about with Pac-12. And all of a sudden, not so harmonious out there anymore, a little bit more infighting. And we're going to discuss that and what ultimately that will all lead to. All that plus... Started off two and three yesterday on our uh, Ramen Noodle Express. Don't worry. Don't worry about that. We will have our early best bet for week four tonight. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, and subscribe to the Late Kick podcast as well. Five-star reviews there are very much appreciated. Uh, We have got so much to get to tonight, and we've got a loaded week. It is full-blown game week mode on here from now until the end of the season, obviously. And we got the Big 12 diving into conference play this week. We got the SEC cranking up, so... It's go time now. Do not miss a show. We are going to jam-pack these shows with as much as you could possibly get in less than, hopefully, 45 minutes. So before we get to anything Week 4 related, we have to revisit what happened yesterday. And what happened is, well, Manny Diaz and Miami shined. And I know there have been a lot of people who are trying to see around the corner and get ahead of the curve and understand there's going to be a lot of Miami praise handed out today. And yes, there is. And rightfully so. I think we can... We can temper the praise and also give just due to a very impressive first two weeks to me for Miami. So number one, let me just say congratulations to Manny Diaz and this program. There is a lot of uncertainty, obviously, with everybody, but when you're overturning so much, quarterback position, offensive coordinator, when you're overturning a lot of that stuff, hey, it's not the easiest thing to get off the ground. Ask folks like Oklahoma State how easy it is to just kind of hit the ground running in light of all the expectations and to meet and maybe even exceed expectations early. It's not the easiest thing to do in the world. And so they beat Louisville yesterday, 47-34. We predicted the outcome correctly, the style of the game that we thought would be a little bit lower scoring we didn't get. That's one of the many reasons I don't do score predictions on here, but I digress. So let's hand out the praise. Let's pump the brakes just a tad on the Miami is back conversation, which was lazily the headline in about half a dozen uh, articles or newspaper columns that I saw this morning. But let me assure you, the excitement here is genuine, it's authentic, it's 100% real. The most important word to me coming out of yesterday and what we've really seen for two weeks now from Miami is versatility. Our buddy uh, on Twitter, there are many good analytics and stat and data-based accounts to follow on Twitter. At StatsOWar is one of the really good ones. And our buddy Parker, I saw him last night. I don't even know if this was 
before the game ended or as the game had ended. But if you watched this game yesterday, uh, suffice to say it was a little bit feast or famine for Miami offensively to a very, very extreme degree. So our buddy Parker tweets out yesterday at some point, Miami three plays accounting for 188 yards, which was a 43% of their total output to that point. This may have been at the end of the game. They had 52 plays. So three plays equals 188 yards. They had 52 plays account for 203 yards. 46 rushes, 1.9 yards per carry on those plays. And so here's the obvious pushback. I'm going to make your argument for you, Kane fan. You look at that and say, okay, but if you were to remove any team's three biggest offensive plays from a game, suffice to say it's probably going to shave their yardage totals and their averages down significantly. Yes, it is. Maybe not quite to that extreme a degree. But yes, last night was a pretty extreme example of big play, big play, big play, and then the rest of it probably is a little misleading in the final score, at least in the box score. But the point is, none of that matters from last night. You don't take away anything from that. That's a football game. That's how football games happen. Big plays tend to uh, make a football game more times than not. So if you take all the criticism when you give them up defensively, certainly you take the credit when you are the beneficiary offensively. But the point he was making was not so much, let's devalue this win. The point he made is, How you view Miami's offense moving forward has a whole lot to do with how much you value those three plays. And there's a lot of merit to what he's saying there. But I also think there's a lot of merit to the pushback that you guys may give if you're a Miami Hurricane fan, or you just maybe believe in this team a little bit more than the average Joe on the street, is you could say, okay, but let's also notice that unlike a lot of feast or famine teams, which do like one thing very well, and if you snuff it out, then they completely grind to a halt as if you've stuck a crowbar in their bicycle spokes when they're riding down the hill. The versatility, to get back to that key point that I talked about, is what I think gives this team a much higher ceiling than your typical feast or famine team. Versatility. What I mean by that is, whether we're talking about Cameron Harris, who had a very good night last night, and we talk about the stable of running backs they have, they have a variety of different ways to hurt you, both in the backfield and out of the backfield. They have a very dynamic threat, I think it's obvious, at quarterback, the likes of which you haven't had a reason to be excited about since the early 2000s in De'Ara King, and I speak uh, pretty conclusively about that, and speak in those terms pretty conclusively, but they also have probably a one-two all-American caliber combination at tight end. That's obvious now, if you didn't already know that, in Jordan and Mallory. And they also have one of the best punter-kicker combinations in America. And they have, while not perfect, a very formidable defense, a very disruptive defense, and a very big, in the right places, and athletic defense. So I say all that because I want you to understand this is a team that has more than just one or two ways to beat you. And last night and in the first week, those were two different looking games if you watched them. And that kind of makes my point for me. While last night, they rode three big explosive plays to being their overall margin of victory you know, Louisville fattened up a little bit in what I would call garbage time. You got to also take into account that was week two for a program that in its own right, speaking about Miami now, is still on the fly installing a lot of new things. This is not by any stretch a finished product offensively for Miami. So you got the pieces in place to where it very well could be that they're just on rung two or rung three of like an eight rung ladder. And they still have quite a ways to climb And so my question or my, I guess, statement won't be made about Miami coming out of week two. This was a really good win. 
But when we're talking about what is the Miami offense, ultimately what is the ceiling for this team, week six, week seven, week eight, if Manny Diaz has the right staff in place, if they have the right chemistry and cohesion in that locker room, if they have the right pieces and they avoid massive amounts of injury or you know COVID cancellations, they're going to be better in week eight than they are right now. That's obvious, I think. That just stands to reason. So there's a lot of reason to be excited. I said it about King. I'll say it about the entire team. There is as much reason to be excited about this team as there has been for any Miami team since, again, the early portions of the 2000s. And for anyone who disagrees with that, think about what I just said. I didn't say be more excited about Miami 2020 than Alabama 2012 or 13. I am doing an apples-to-apples comparison of this program versus prior versions of this program and the teams that this program put on the field. Which version of the Miami Hurricanes, again, before the or after really the uh, early portion of the 2000s would I have reason to be more excited about than the one I saw last night so stamp of approval from Miami really like where they are not at the Clemson level but when we're talking about the battle for the number two spot there at the very least if I were to put them on the field with Notre Dame tomorrow you don't think that would be a competitive game I do as it stands they play host to a Mike Norvell-less Florida State Seminole team Saturday at Hard Rock And the early line is Miami minus three touchdowns, Miami minus four touchdowns, no friends, Miami minus 10. Be careful. Central Florida, 49, Georgia Tech, 21. I made a quote, and I was reminded of it frequently and often after this game wrapped up. Some of you didn't even have the dignity in class to wait until the game ended. I made a quote, because I'm really high on Georgia Tech, that's obvious, have been for a while. And we talked about Georgia Tech a lot this time last week. And I made the quote that nothing about my opinion towards Georgia Tech and their future has to do with results in 2020. The win over Florida State gave me a good excuse to talk about it. But I said, and this was the quote that a lot of you brought up, they could lose by 30 to Central Florida and nothing would change about my opinion. Here we are, having seen Georgia Tech lose by 28 to Central Florida. And I am a man of my word, for better or for worse, nothing's changed about my opinion of this team. I have not, to my knowledge, and I asked Colin to back me up, and he couldn't think of one either, I don't even think I've made a prediction about this team in 2020, nor will I. I don't have ultra-high expectations for the record that Georgia Tech is going to put up this year. I have extremely high expectations for what they're going to be doing down the road two, three years. It may be as early as next year, but my point is, as I was looking at a lot of those text messages, the takeaway is not Georgia Tech just blew this game or anything like that. The takeaway is... My goodness, they have a little ways to go, but my goodness, part B, Central Florida, that was their first game on the road against the Power Five, and I know we have rightfully devalued this whole Power Five, G5 matchup um, fallacy that's presented regularly, and if week one or two or whatever we called last week didn't already go a long way in doing this, maybe this should have too. I mean, the top portion of G5 has long since overlapped about the bottom 40% of the P5. So yesterday, the latest example of that, Central Florida's good now. As much as I have in the past ridden that bandwagon of, you know, excluding G5 from qualifying for the playoff automatically and all that auto bid talk. Listen, independent of that, we are looking at a football team in Central Florida that's really good. I had a couple of weeks ago, someone reach out to me from Central Florida, from inside the program and say, hey, don't want to alert you or um, give you cause for a false hype, but Some people inside here really believe this may be the best team they've had to date. It's a pretty uh, big statement. 
This team, in some people's eyes, won a national title a few years ago. At the very least, they've been good for a while. And Mackenzie Milton is out. And that's the whole thing. I mean, quarterback, they're unknown at quarterback. They had 10 guys opt out of the season. And then all of a sudden, you didn't miss those 10 guys so much yesterday. At least if you were watching them play Georgia Tech. And Mackenzie Milton, phenomenal talent. But if you didn't know who Mackenzie Milton was, you'd probably think their quarterback wasn't missing. Because the same guy who backed Mackenzie Milton up in high school, who now backed him up at Central Florida and flew like 19,000 miles from Hawaii to do it, his name is... Um, Dylan Gabriel. And if you don't know the name, well, that's him. And I would suggest you learn the name. That was about as thorough a performance, especially like a debut performance from a quarterback. And those were about as good a batch of precision throws as you'll see at any level of this sport from anybody, regardless of amount of experience. He's good and they're good. And so with the quarterback that normally would be penciled in as the starter, Mackenzie Milton on the shelf rehabbing, you had a guy come in and look every bit the part, if not a little bit better than what you're already used to watching with Central Florida. And so then as they did away with Georgia Tech, naturally your attention shifts and it shifts to uh, the 21st of November. That's when they play Cincinnati. And sooner than that, October 17th, that's when they travel to Memphis. Going to be really exciting this year. Because who in the world knows what the structure of the college football playoff is going to be? And who in the world knows how many viable candidates there are for any number of seats that we end up having at that table? But congratulations to Central Florida and congratulations to Miami from yesterday. So here's the way we do this every year. Every year, we don't do it for every program, but the big-time programs and the viewership that we get heavily determines this. So the folks from fan bases that watch this channel the most frequently, uh, you are rewarded by us giving you a grand season preview of your team on air. So we're starting it now. SEC football kicks off this week, Alabama grand season preview time. It already feels different in Tuscaloosa this point this year to this point the last couple of years for the simple fact that Colin, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we have led a single show talking about big injuries at Alabama. You can knock on all the wood you want to. My point is, that's already cause for celebration, and they haven't even teed it up. And when they do, in week one, by the way, recently released, they will be a four-touchdown favorite on the road at Missouri. So we're not necessarily breaking down that game, but... We always do the mood tracker, and the mood tracker, if I did one for Alabama fans right now, is kind of the enthused and reinvigorated hunters kind of mentality. This program rarely gets to be the hunter. I mean, most of the time, the country's coming after them. And right now, if I were to take a random straw poll of the college football public, they're talking Clemson a lot, and they should be. And they're talking Ohio State a lot now, and they should be. And the main reasons are very obvious. You got a guy by the name of Trevor Lawrence and a guy by the name of Justin Fields, and the roster around them is not too shabby either. And so Alabama's in that conversation, but because of the perceived disadvantage that they would have at quarterback heads up relative to those teams, I don't think a lot of people are crowning Alabama any kind of preseason or predicted national champion. And for that reason, we can classify them as a very rare hunter at least as we enter 2020. Areas of focus for Alabama this year, these are the things that we here at Lake Kick will be keeping our eye on. The overall identity of this offense, which ties right into what I was just talking about there, they have been the definition of high octane. 
past couple of years, you had a guy by the name of Tua Tungavailoa there, and obviously they had a bevy of receivers, the likes of which you've certainly never seen at Alabama. High octane, though, equals high variance, and that has typically been what Nick Saban is totally averse to. And so now, what kind of dynamic shift might we have here? Because here's what I'm pretty sure they do have. I'm pretty sure they have, if not the best, one of the very best offensive lines on paper in college football. Uh, they, they go NFL across the board there. And in a lot of cases, they're NFL and they're too deep. They're very good. They are extremely deep and extremely talented at running back. And that's not anything that I think we need to guess a whole lot about. And because you have that, Combined with Mac Jones at quarterback, who is good, but is certainly not Tua Tonga-Vailoa in the arm talent department, I wonder if there's not a little bit more identity shift towards blending the new concepts that have energized that program and in a lot of ways transformed what they are offensively with an older school approach that lowers the overall variance and gives you a more consistent week-to-week outcome. I wonder about that. The second thing I'm focusing on is answering the whole Pete Golding question. If I heard it once, I heard it a million times in the offseason, got to get rid of Pete Golding. And it was not the offseason. I mean, it was really after their regular season finale last year. Well, Pete Golding's going to be gone. Who are they replacing him with? Pete Golding's not gone. He is the defensive coordinator at Alabama today. When we talked to Nick Saban a few months ago, I asked him, hey, there's a lot of external noise about Pete Golding. I want to know how you feel about him internally. And Nick Saban didn't even bat an eye when I asked him that. He said, I'm fine with who we have here, and that's obvious, because if he wasn't, I can assure you they wouldn't be on his staff. This is the University of Alabama. There's a line out the door for folks who want that job. He's not going to waste two seconds with a guy in the defensive coordinator chair that he's uncomfortable with. But he said, when we did what we were supposed to last year, we were fine. That translates into we had a lot of young guys on the field because of injury that really didn't belong on the field yet. This year, some of those same guys will be on the field and will probably benefit from the baptism by fire they got last year. But one way or the other, we'll get an answer to that this year. I think you'll see a drastic improvement from their defensive production this year. Uh, But if we don't, then for better or for worse, we will have answered the Pete Golding question. Jalen Waddell, when it comes to non-quarterback position players in the sport, probably as dynamic as any. Uh, When you guys talk Heisman, which I don't a whole lot, but when you have and you've asked me for a non-quarterback candidate, I have given you number 17 there. Collins playing this at regular speed, but he still looks a little blurry. That's just the kind of player he is. Jalen Waddell is the kind of guy that if I could get a prop bet about scoring a touchdown on a kick return and a punt return and passing and rushing and receiving, if I could have a prop bet for a guy who's going to achieve all that this year, Jalen Waddell's the kind of guy who could do that. So, He's the kind of guy to watch. He's the kind of guy who flips a football game. There are many people in the Alabama organization who think he is the best football player on their team, regardless of position. That is a mouthful. That is any given year, six or seven preseason mock drafted into the first round. And that dude, they think, is probably the best they have. And the other thing to watch before we get to the biggest questions is any year at Alabama, you're asking the same question, impact freshmen. And they got a lot of them. And they got quite a few that I think are going to play early and often. In fact, I don't think you'll have to wait past the opener against Missouri to see Bryce Young at quarterback, first and foremost. You've got a couple of edge rushers in Will Anderson and Drew Sanders that I am extremely excited to see there, as are they. Um, Brian Branch 
and Javon Baker, defensive back and wide receiver, respectfully, or respectively, who have come out of the state of Georgia, both contending for early playing time there. Uh, there is a lot of infusion of young talent going on there because uh, they are extremely high on the class they just signed, as they normally are, that has already begun immediately pushing some multiple-year incumbents, and I think you'll see a nice combination of both. So the biggest questions for Alabama this year, number one, I don't even start offensively. I actually start defensively, and I really wonder, are they standing any chance of returning back to form defensively? I'm not talking about 2011 because the reality is offensive football has changed, period. And so you're probably not you know, holding people out of their side of the 50-yard line for multiple quarters like that old Alabama team could do. However, they do have elite potential. When we're talking about personnel here, they do have elite potential. The standard, though, that you have come accustomed to expecting from specifically their defensive line and inside linebacker play has been non-existent. And I'm really talking about when teams get inside the red area on them, the ability to punch it in on Alabama used to be something that if you did it, you celebrated it for a couple of weeks because not many were doing it. That hasn't been there. And it hasn't been there really because of a combination of injury and just the fact that personnel hasn't quite been to the level that it has been there in the past. And for that reason, LeBron Ray, these are all former huge names in the recruiting world. DJ Dale, Justin Iboigby, Dylan Moses back this year, Christian Harris in his second year has the chance to be everything for Alabama that I think N'Kobe Dean will be for Georgia. Those guys, if they're all healthy and they are as we expected them to always be, Alabama should be elite. At every one of those positions, Alabama should be elite. They got really good depth, I think, especially on the interior of their defensive line. And to be honest with you, pass rusher, I think also is an extremely deep position for them that will only become deeper as some of those young guys that were part of probably the best outside rusher class that we've seen in quite a while get their feet wet a little bit more. Second question goes straight back to quarterback. And it's not week one. Week one, Mac Jones is your starter unless Mac Jones walks off the job this week. And so Mac Jones week one, Bryce Young, I think we'll see him in pretty much every game. I'm not asking a quarterback question in the context of week one. I'm talking about week eight. Week eight, they're coming out of a bye week. They're going to LSU. We have fast forwarded a couple of months into the season. What is the Alabama quarterback situation there? Because I tend to believe that while you have had some other battles across the country that have been labeled two-quarterback situations, as we talked about last week, I view Alabama as a two-quarterback situation. I don't just view it in the classical context of a 50-50 preseason battle. I view this one as the kind of battle where the more talented, the more raw talented option is going to be the backup to start the season, and that's Bryce Young. And the guy who's been there a long time and who is plenty talented enough in his own right is going to be your starter for the time being. And then we get to see every week, we get to see Bryce Young take reps, maybe in garbage time, maybe some more meaningful reps. And we get to find out what he's about. And if he is about what we think he's about, and by we, I mean 24-7 sports, uh, labeling him the number one player in America, regardless of position this last cycle. And they don't typically whiff on those quarterback evaluations too often these days. And if you think they do, then look at his offer list if you want to confirm that. So if he is who we think he is, I wonder about midseason, later in the season, because we will have not only gotten to see Bryce Young by then, we will have seen Ohio State, we will have seen Clemson, a whole lot more than we already have, and we will have a lot more answers to the questions of what would it take to beat them in Columbus or beat them, that team up there in Clemson, South Carolina? What would it take? 
And is the answer Mac Jones and whatever Alabama is, or is the answer Alabama's really, really good, but they need to take it to another level at quarterback? Third question, how severe is that shift from going Tua and Judy and Ruggs to the aforementioned Mac Jones and you know, Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle still there, but Mechie and Javon Baker, the true freshman you just talked about. And that also ties into the possible identity shift. I don't think that combination needs to be nearly as consistently game-changing explosive as they have been in the past because of names like Najee Harris and names like uh, Brian Robinson and names like Trey Sanders, a guy you probably should have heard about last year if not for injury. I think they'll be way more physical this year offensively than they have been in the last couple of years, and I think that'll be by design. So the schedule analysis portion of this, what we like to do is I don't like to do the put your schedule up and just say win, 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 loss, win. I don't think there's a lot of skill in that. And so what I like to do is I like to take your schedule and look at all your opponents, and I like to put a toughness rating, 1 to 10, 10 being the toughest, 1 being um, roast beef tech, And then I like to group them into different categories and simulate your season 100 times. And on average, what would your best case, worst case, and most likely record scenario be? So what we did with Alabama's schedule is we looked at it. And Colin, if we have that, let's roll with that. And what we looked at specifically is how many 10-rated games do you have? Because for a team like Alabama, there's a big difference in a 10-rated game versus an 8-rated game. And Georgia is the only game I have them playing that is rated a 10 on the 1 to 10. As you see, though, they have four games rated 8 or 9. They got four rated 6 or 7, and they got one rated 5 or less, and that is that game at Arkansas in December, by the way, to end the season. Hey, weather forecast could change that. The best case, worst case, and most likely record scenarios for Alabama this year. Their best case any year is 10 and 0 and it is no different this year. Their worst case is 7 and 3. Their most likely record scenario our models spit out 8.75 and 1.25 on average per 100 simulations which obviously we had to round up. So we are going to predict Alabama to go 9 and 1 this year. And that concludes our grand season preview for Alabama football in 2020. I hope you were entertained. Please come back in about three seconds because we're doing the Georgia grand season preview too. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And let's do it. Georgia, grand season preview. Just when you thought it was safe to assume about Georgia, just when you thought you knew maybe, just maybe what they would be offensively this year, Jamie Newman says, bye, 
And then you start hearing the name Dewan Mathis, and Georgia fans know who he is. Most people outside of Athens say, who? And then, what? wait, he's going to start? And that hasn't been made official, but we firmly believe that will be the case for the opener against Arkansas. And so now everything's thrown back into a, an expectation tailspin, if you will. I'm not saying it's dramatic and they're going 6-4 and four or anything like that. We'll get to record scenarios in just a second. But there are no excuses here regardless. No one wants to hear excuses in the middle of the season. You definitely don't want to hear them in the preseason. The mood tracker, as we get started here on the grand season preview for Georgia, is kind of, if you're a Georgia fan, you're already bought in. At this point, there's no turning back. And so you're just kind of ready, come what may. You're ready to get hurt again. You think you have national championship potential. Uh, that hasn't panned out in the last three-plus decades for one reason or the other. If it happens again this year, it happens. But there's no reason not to be fully bought in here. Areas of focus for this 2020 version of Georgia football. By 10 miles, it's got to be quarterback. Dewan Mathis, this whole surge in the whispers and intel and rumors, and we've heard the same thing as you have over the past couple of weeks. What is it? Is it congruent to... Jamie Newman leaving? Is it congruent to JT Daniels not being medically cleared yet? Or is Dewan Mathis just an absolute stud freak athlete that has taken the job regardless of who's there? That's something that we can talk about in just a second. Also, kind of tied into the quarterback situation and offense in general, this whole new offensive shift. We came out of the bowl game and getting beat like a drum by LSU in the SEC title game, and it became obvious to everyone, got to make an offensive change here. And Kirby Smart agreed with you. And so he made a change. And in came Todd Munkin, and with that, rumors of everything from, well, we're going to spread it out a little bit more to we're going full-on air raid, which was never going to happen and certainly isn't right now. However, how big of an adjustment will we see? When you turn on the Arkansas game in week one, in other words, if you were to have frozen yourself after the end of last year and just opened the capsule for week one, how different, you don't even know about the changes, how different would this offense look? My expectation is it's probably going to look a lot more similar than you expected to, only because even if they did intend on radically overhauling this, a lot of that's probably been thrown out the window with having to play a quarterback that they probably weren't planning on playing a month ago, or if we're to believe the rumors out of Athens even a couple of weeks ago. Consider the personnel. Number one, consider the entire backdrop being one of the best defenses in the country that you get to play with, so you don't have to score 40 a game. And then number two, just consider, what are we playing with here? We got an offensive line where run blocking is well ahead of pass pro. We got one surefire stud receiver and some other ones we think will be good this year. We got some studs at running back. And we got a guy who is questionable in terms of decision-making because we had not put him on the field to throw the ball against real competition. But we do know he can run, and we do know he's an athlete. What kind of offense would you run? Rhetorical. I'll leave that there. And number three, the disruption factor here. Havoc rate is so overused around Georgia at this point that I'm just looking for new ways to explain what they're looking for. But it's really that. How much can we and how consistently can we harass the quarterback They've got to affect the passer. Because here's the thing. It doesn't matter versus Arkansas. To be brutally honest with you, it's not going to matter against Vanderbilt, whether they can get after the quarterback. Their roster is good enough in most years of a 10-game season to go 8-2. and two. I mean, their, their, their G helmet sticker can get thrown out on the field, and that's good enough to go 7-3, and 8-2 and with nothing added in. But in order to go 9-1 and one or 10-0, and oh, 
it's going to matter against the likes of Alabama or the likes of in a college football playoff situation, if you get that far, the likes of a Clemson or Ohio State, Florida in the regular season. You're going to have to get after the quarterback. I don't care how good your defense is. This sport has shown us over the last few years, quarterback play at the college level has elevated to where if you are in the elite tier offensively, there is no defense known to man in this sport that is shutting you down. Now, they may not give up 50, but if you face the elite of the elite in this sport, they're scoring 24 plus on you. Now, if it's 34 or 44, that's a problem. But the point is, you've got to be able to match it. And so you're going to have to be able to do something in terms of disrupting because the difference between holding them to 23 or 24 versus them tacking on another touchdown field goal and that being the difference in the game is how consistently can you affect the quarterback? Doesn't have to be a sack all the time, but there have been times most recently that LSU game watching Joe Burrow have uh, the amount of time it takes us to do an entire show to stand in the pocket and just kind of watch things unfold. I think at one time he yawned in the SEC championship game and then kept right on going with the same play that was happening before he yawned. They got to get after the quarterback better. And so there are guys now. I start, you normally start at edge rusher. Hey, I think guys like N'Kobe Dean, who's an inside backer for them, but not in the classical sense of 6'3", 255 pounds, that's the kind of athlete that can disrupt things. Uh, Nolan Smith, Jalen Carter, these are the kind of guys who can disrupt. I don't care where it comes from, but they need it. And they need it in waves, not just one guy that you can game plan around if you're really good offensively. All right, let's talk about biggest questions for Georgia here. Defensively. Everybody expects them to be good. One of, if not the very best units in the sport this year. But notice what I said. One of, if not the best in the sport this year. Are they going to be historically great? Is this going to be a unit that we compare against the best of all time? Or is it going to be one of two or three of the best units this year? Because there is a difference there in the way that you can expect in a game and the way that you can game plan offensively in a game. If you've got a historically great defense, that changes things a little bit. And it also probably changes the way you go about things offensively a little bit. Number two, what will that offense be asked to do that falls right in line with question number one there? Again, Georgia's roster, I firmly believe, can go eight and two. Just the, that's how good they are. They probably have, you can make an argument, they have the most talented preseason roster in America at this point. That's how good they've recruited. They can go eight and two with that roster. But what is the offense asked to do? Falls right in line with what the defense uh, is or isn't allowing week to week. But you can only protect that offense for so long. And I keep going back to this. That defense can give you a false sense of security. If it's not historically great, you know, if it's not one of the best of all time, the fact of the matter is going to remain, as I just said, elite college offenses are going to score on you. And if you have sheltered that offense and you have taken the air out of the ball against inferior opposition just because, hey, there's only one way we lose this game, and that's turnovers. If you play that risk-averse style, that's fine to get you 8-2. and two. But if you're looking to go further than that, eventually your quarterbacks are going to have to win you a game or two. Is the Georgia quarterback situation, is that offense going to be at a point anytime this year where you can count on them? When you need a drive or two, third quarter, maybe it's 17-17 against Florida, and you need a drive. Maybe you're trailing 20-17 to 17 against Alabama. You need a drive. At any point this year, are they going to be in a position to do that? And since we were just showing you pictures of JT Daniels there, what happens if he's cleared or when he's cleared? We expect it to happen eventually. Right now, they couldn't start him if they wanted to. But what happens when he's cleared? Because you've heard a lot of rumor and whatnot out of Georgia about the reason why Jamie Newman left and the reason why Dewan Mathis may very well be your starter for the first week or first several weeks. 
a lot of that stuff may be true. There may be shades of gray or degrees of truth to it. What happens when he's cleared? How big a quarterback uh, competition do you have up there then? Is it Dewan Mathis's job? Or is this a case where it's his job right now because you can't really get Daniel's fair looks in practice, but once he's cleared, then we kind of hit the reset button. And once we see that we got to be able to stretch the field better than we can with Mathis, how much does that reset that quarterback situation? You can only know that once he gets clear because they cannot dedicate practice reps to a guy right now that they know 100% cannot play on Saturday. This is not five weeks to go until the season starting. We're here. So you don't waste practice reps right now. And number four, Matt Luke is the new offensive line coach here. Will he produce a great offensive line? Because they've been pretty good there for the last few years. Right now, they probably have as many question marks as they have in quite a while in that offensive line. Now, they are not without personnel by any stretch of the imagination. Question mark doesn't equal weakness. Question mark equals question mark. Matt Luke is very highly regarded. He started with a bang there. He's made some waves on the recruiting trail. So now what kind of product does he put on the field? Because you just lost one of the best in the sport in Todd Grantham. And everyone always loves to assume best case, and it's glass all the way full, and, oh, we'll seamlessly transition. Well, you can't tout how great Todd Grantham is to me for three years and then pretend like it's no big deal when he leaves. It's one way or the other. Or maybe he was great, and Matt Luke is also that great, so that's the reason it's a question to me right now. How about the schedule analysis for Georgia? They have a bye before Florida, as they always do, but this schedule is pretty front-loaded. They have five, to me, of their toughest games. In fact, their five toughest games are all in a row, if you look at that. And it starts in week two. They got Auburn, they got Tennessee, they got Bama, they got Kentucky, a bye week, and then Florida. We have two of their games rated 10, and that's the game at Bama, and that's the game against Florida neutral site there. We got three of them rated eight or nine. We got three of them rated six or seven, and we got two of them rated five or less. Take a good look at that, and then think along with me. Best, worst, and most likely record scenarios. Georgia's just like Alabama at this point. The talent alone makes their ceiling 10-0 every year when you're talking best-case scenario. So that's where Georgia starts. 10-0 is best case. The worst case to me is 6-4. and four. When you're talking about two games rated 10 or higher and you're talking about half of your schedule being rated 8 or higher, yeah, if you don't get quarterback figured out, you absolutely right 6-4 and four is the worst case there. The most likely for Georgia, our model per 100 season simulations spat out 8.5 and 1.5. And and so it was dead on an even number there. We had to round up or round down, and I rounded down. The reason I rounded down is because I can listen to people tell me that the ceiling, even with Dewan Mathis in this offense, it's sky high, and it very well may be. I mean, there certainly is a pop potential with this team this year because there is so much unknown entering the year that if all the unknown exceeds what normal expectation would be, that's why 10-0 is there for best case. So right now, we're going to go with 8-2. and two. That's going to be the official projection here. Georgia 8-2 and two for the 2020 college football season. I think that went pretty good. Now let's see if the entire season plays out the way we said it would. Speaking of not playing out the way that anyone thought anything would, we had some things happen yesterday. The Big Ten released their schedule, and it is, to me, very tough. As we looked at that, they put a nice second helmet grid schedule or just a normal grid schedule out, whatever you want to call it. Colin's showing it to you right now. It's really hard for me to look at this and see anything other than Ohio State versus Wisconsin in the Big Ten title game. 
But that's not what stood out to me the most. I'll tell you what stood out to me the most. You know that my second passion right closely behind college football is weather. Every Big Ten team has at least one home game in the month of December. How many feet of snow are on this schedule? If I could put out another prop bet for you, how many total feet of snow are on this schedule would be a very, very fun prop bet. Minnesota in December? That's great. Iowa in December? It's phenomenal. And listen, as much as I believe in championship games being played in a static environment, regular season games? I love it. Play in, play in horizontal rain, play in a blizzard. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, so the playoff standard debate, that's really what's at the forefront right now. That's what all of you have, at least judging by my inbox, wanted to talk about. And essentially what it comes down to is this. Well, they're only planning on playing eight games, and even now they're going to have to thread a, a pretty fine, thin needle because at any given point all these restrictions that are in place and the protocols that are in place could derail the season where even if Ohio State wins undefeated, maybe they're 6-0. and or 7-0 instead of 8-0, but even if they're 8-0, a lot of you flat out don't think it's fair that they should be compared to conferences that are going to play nine games or 10 games. And so to that, I just want to tell you this. Symmetry went out the window a long time ago when it comes to the 2020 season. So let me meet you in the middle, as I normally try and do in any kind of debate or disagreement. Let's just identify the common ground, because we have a lot of it. Common ground point, number one. The Big Ten screwed up. That's the entire reason we're in the situation that we're in right now. They will never admit that. You and I both have fully functioning brains, so we know that. The Big Ten screwed up. That's why this is the way it is. Number two, things are uneven. Yes, again, anyone with a functioning set of eyeballs can see that. And number three, no, it's not fair. It's not going to be fair. So you just have to accept that in a season of craziness and chaos, Fairness went out the window a long time ago. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is the case. So with that in mind, Colin is showing you video of Ryan Day, head coach at Ohio State. Here's what this is going to come down to, right or wrong, fair or not. It's about Ohio State and the rest of the pack up there, because Ohio State is the class of that pack. And Ohio State's going to play some football games. And if they pass what a lot of people affectionately refer to as the eyeball test, if they look like we think they're going to look, most people aren't going to care if they played six games or eight games. You may care in principle and in theory, but what I'm talking about is folks who are making the decision as to who goes to the playoff, if they look like a machine, all the arguments are going to be is that, well, they could play 15 games and they'd still look the same as they do right now. The counter to that would be, okay, but I mean, once upon a time, they were getting it handed to them by the likes of Iowa or Purdue is three or four touchdown underdogs. So you can't just assume someone's going to win every Saturday. That's why they play the game. And if you make that argument, you will be right. You will be right. I'm not telling you you're not right. I'm already visiting late November or early December along with you. I'm just saying it is what it is at this point. And I don't believe that a critical amount of people in a college football playoff selection committee room are going to look at them if they're steamrolling everyone and say, nope, can't let them in. They didn't play enough games. I don't believe that's going to happen. I think there are viable arguments on both sides. I don't believe that's going to happen. That's just my take on that. Now, that's not where the drama is anymore. The drama is in the Pac-12. And the very latest from there is there was a lot of harmony. You know, it seemed for a long time, like as the Big Ten was pulling in 12, 13 different directions, it felt like 
The Pac-12 was pretty harmonious. Now, granted, they were harmonious in the idea that they weren't going to play. Well, now all that's been thrown for a loop. John Wilner, as we have said many times, does as good a job as anyone covering the Pac-12. He is out on the West Coast, and so he kind of alluded to and intimated over the weekend, yeah, there's a fracture in that good faith that we've been operating with out here. And they expected, according to John Wilner, and he is well plugged in out there, they expected a vote yesterday. They wanted to announce something yesterday morning. They wanted to kind of steal a lot of that spotlight that the Big Ten got, but the presidents didn't allow it. They did not have a vote to decide when they're going to start the season yet. Now, there is hope amongst some too many depends who you talk to as to whether it's the some or the many, that they'll still be able to crank things up by Halloween out there. But the problem is not everyone thinks they can get started by Halloween. So now the question on the table at last check was, what if some people are ready to start by Halloween and some people can't start until the next week, November 7th? And uh, so uh, some people are saying, well, tough, you got to wait to November 7th. We all got to start together. And then some other people say, forget that. We're ready to go. We'll start October 31st and then you can just catch up. If you don't have any bye weeks, how do you catch up? So then there's a happy medium where you could just play week one, and even though you're playing teams from your conference, count them as out-of-conference games. I don't know where they're going to land on that. My point is, here's the underlying sentiment. The underlying sentiment from the coaches who are ready to go is the Pac-12 was so happy to announce on September 3rd that they had partnered with Quiddle, and that is a rapid antigen test. And they signed their own deal with Quiddle. And so a lot of people out there now, in retrospect, are saying, wait a second, if we're going to play football, why wasn't the urgency cranked up out here the day we signed that deal? Now, the answer to, answer, the answer to me is they didn't plan on playing football. They planned on following the Big Ten. And probably at that time, they didn't expect the Big Ten to make the move they did. If you're a football coach, You constantly have to have a plan. You have to have contingency off of contingency off of contingency. And you get judged week to week on how good or bad your plan is. And what really frustrates a football coach when they have to wade themselves into these sorts of waters is anonymous administrative types, they don't always move at the same speed a football coach does. And they don't always have meticulous planning the way that a football coach does. And right now, You are at the behest and at the whim of anonymous administrators out there, for lack of a better term. So that's sort of the infighting right now. I expect one way or the other in the next few days we'll have some kind of resolution on this only because they got to figure out a way to get it kicked off and you got to start practicing pretty soon because the clock is ticking and every day that goes by is one more week or so that you have to push the season back, at which point you're asking why in the world are we even doing this? All right, Colin, so let's, uh, let me make sure and pull something up so I don't get faulty information. Okay, uh, on Sunday nights, we always give at least one, and tonight it will be one, of our early best bets. We like to simulate our numbers overnight, and so we've already got, I'm looking right in front of me at every score we expect for every game that is played this Saturday. And there are quite a few games, actually, that have jumped off the chart, but none more so than the early game that we're going to hand out in our five-pack of the Ramen Noodle Express. Colin, without further ado, or further to-do, as some of my buddies back home would say, our early best bet for Week 4 college football, as the SEC kicks off, no less, is going to be this game. It's Florida at Ole Miss... It is this Saturday. It's a noon Eastern kickoff, 11 a.m. Central. I haven't gotten used to living on Central time yet. The Vegas number is Florida minus 12 and a half. I want to tell you something. I tempered 
what our actual model says about this game because it was north of three touchdowns, which is a massive discrepancy between our number and the Vegas number. Very irregular. I tempered it, and still it only came down to 19 and a half. So with that being said, the first of the weekly five-pack in the Ramen Noodle Express this week will be the Florida Gators minus 12 and a half at Ole Miss. Keep in mind, if you're talking about how this game looks, this is a team in Florida that has had very few problems with COVID. This is a team in Ole Miss that has had a ton of problems with COVID. This is a team in Florida that returns a quarterback and offensive coordinator and head coach and better roster. And then this is a team in Ole Miss that has a new head coach, new offensive coordinator, same quarterback, but a lot of new and a lot of disruption. And therefore, we are rolling confidently with Florida minus 12 and a half as the first pick in our weekly five pack. The other picks could come at any time this week. To be honest with you, I'm not so sure. I may not put out a couple of these on Twitter. I almost put out the Florida pick on Twitter today because I was afraid it was going to move to 14. The best way to keep up with that is to watch every show or listen to every podcast and follow me on Twitter at Late Kick Josh. And I think, Colin, that's all we had to do tonight. Really good night. Remember to get your questions in for the Late Kick Extra podcast this week. That's all Q&A. It is some of the most fun and best content that we do all week, regardless. And so uh, get your questions in for that. At Late Kick Josh on Twitter, joshpate 706 at gmail.com. For Director Colin, for Jordan on the podcast side of things, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great week. College football is here in earnest. God bless. Now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.